Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. We're coming to the end of the life of Abraham. It's been a wonderful journey looking at the life of faith of Abraham. And if you remember last week as we looked at Genesis 21, we saw of how God's promises to Abraham regarding land, seed, and blessing were slowly lining up. That promised seed after many years had been born to Abraham, that son of promise. And this son would be central to the plan of redemption. And then we saw of how that episode with regards to that well and how King Abimelech gives him water rights over that place and showing that as he, as he has ownership o- over that well and has full control over the water in that region, it is showing bit by bit how even the land promise would slowly come to pass. And Abraham is also becoming a great name and being a blessing to others, which is exactly why Abimelech, a a, a pagan king, is also coming to him and seeking alliance and peace treaties with him. And we saw that at the end of this, that Abraham calls on the name of the Lord. He he plants this tamarisk tree, or, or really more like a shrub, which... Uh, continues to persevere through all seasons. And he calls on God as the everlasting God. The God who never changes. The God whose word will never fail. That it will continue to remain. And he will be faithful to accomplish everything that he has promised. And it's in this, at this point, as Abraham is now so convinced of who this God is, this God is so great, he's not just the El Shaddai, the Almighty God, the Most High God, the God who cares, the God who does all these things, but he is a God who is the everlasting God who will never change. From age to age, He is God. Whether there is sin, whether there is any other obstacle, God will still bring about everything that He has promised. And Abraham needn't worry at all. And Abraham is fully convinced of this. Now, how did Abraham get to this point? Well, just look at chapters 12 to 20. It was a process through trials and, and, and over a period of time where his faith is being purified. And let me just say this, as, even as we look at this thing called as faith. If you remember a few months ago, I, I mentioned uh, a, a professor of mine put it this way about faith, that Faith is really, uh, you know, more than it is about us. It is fundamentally about God. And it magnifies God and what He does and what He is doing. It's really a, a reflection that God does it all by His grace. And it's a growing and seeing of that, of who God is and what He does. And really another way of saying it is just Hebrews 11.1, which states this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That faith is something whereby there is an assurance regardless of what is around. There is a growing assurance 
a growing conviction of things that have been promised, of things that have been hoped for. That's what faith is. It's a growing realizing of that. And so through all this, over the years, Abraham has now come to this wonderful point whereby he realizes God is his all in all. And it is at this point God tests Abraham. I've titled this morning's sermon as exactly that, that God tests Abraham. And, and we're going to look at this chapter under three headings. God's testing in verses 1 and 2. And then Abraham's faith in verses 3 to 10. And then God's provision in verses 11 through to 24. And what we're going to see here is a few things, really. We're going to see something of the nature of faith. We're going to see the, the very purpose of God's testing of faith. We're going to see the, the love a father has for his son. And it will ultimately point to God, the eternal Father, and the love that He has for His eternal Son. And it's also a passage that will talk about how in this wonderful relationship, what it is that God the Father has done by sending His Son to save wretched people like us. So it's a wonderful passage, and these are some of the things that we will see from this passage. So let's look, first of all, at God's testing in verses 1 and 2. Now it says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. After these things. After what things? After everything that has happened so far. After what has happened in Genesis 21. Now, we don't know how many years have passed since Ishmael has been expelled from his home and since that great celebration there was for Isaac's weaning. Remember, Isaac at the time was only a toddler. Most scholars believe about 10 or 15 years have passed since. Why is that? Because what you see here is Isaac is no longer a toddler in this chapter. He's at least a teenager, if not a young man, because as we will see later in this text, Isaac is strong enough to carry the wood for the sacrifice up the mountain. So this is not a two-year-old or three-year-old. Quite a few years have passed. At least 10 to 15 years have passed. So it's been quite a while since that heartache of having to expel his son Ishmael for Abraham. Now the Lord comes to test him. And that's what it says here. God tested Abraham. See, one of the things that we need to understand about God's testing, that when he tests it's his children, it is always for our good and for his glory. Because God wants us to be assured of the faith that we have. And more so, He wants us to be assured of the God that we have put our faith in. That's why the Lord tests us. That's why the Lord tests His children. It's very different from temptation. See, temptation is not for our good. Temptation is to bring out our fleshly lust. It is to cause us to sin. 
But when God tests us, it's not for bad, it's not for us to sin, but it is for our good. It is to strengthen us in our faith and our hope and our assurance and the conviction with regards to God and His Word. So God comes to test Abraham and calls out to him, and Abraham replies, Here I am. You know, ever ready, Lord, to do whatever you have me to do. And now here's what God called him to do. Verse 2. And he said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. See, at the start of Abraham's journey of faith, if you remember in Genesis 12, God called Abraham to leave his country and his family and everything else, all those connections to his past life. God says, leave all that behind. And at that time, just when Abraham was beginning his life of faith, at that very point itself, God said, leave all that behind and go to the land where I will show you. Let go of your past and follow me. Go to the land where I will follow you. Where you will follow me. Now again, toward the latter part of his life of faith, toward the end of his life. The Lord is saying again, go. Take your son to offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of Moriah where I will tell you. Very similar language. So this is Abraham's final test of faith. See, unlike when he started, now the Lord is saying to Abraham, now I want you to let go of your future and follow me and trust me. See, because Isaac is his future. Without Isaac, there's no future line for Abraham. Isaac is his beloved son. So essentially the Lord is saying, your past, your future, your everything, will you trust me with your whole life and follow me? And just notice again the way the Lord makes it very clear to Abraham who it is that he wants Abraham to sacrifice. First he says, Take your son. Not an animal, not anyone else. Your only son. Remember, Ishmael has been sent off, that other son of his. So he's got only one son now with him. And then the Lord's even more specific. The son that you love. You know, one commentator says, that, you know, this doesn't imply that Abraham did not love Ishmael, but it emphasizes how precious Isaac was in his sight. It's almost as though, you know, even though he did love Ishmael, now that Ishmael's out of the picture, all his love and affection is on this one son that he's got now in his home. And then God, you know, just to make it absolutely clear, he says, it's Isaac. This son of laughter, this son that has brought you so much joy, this son that has been born by divine blessing, that's this son that you love dearly, take him and offer him up to me as a burnt offering. You know, what's interesting here is that this is the first time in the Bible that the word love is used. And any time any you know, particular words are used in the Bible, the first time, it, it has a lot of significance. And here it's used to portray the love that a father has for his dear son.
And it's so significant because it ultimately points to the triune God. The love that is there, the, the love that the eternal Father has for His eternal Son. And it's in that relationship what God did to save wretched sinners. And the Lord is calling him to sacrifice his beloved son, Isaac, as a burnt offering. What's a burnt offering? That's where the offering is completely burnt in its entirety for sin. I mean, it almost doesn't make sense, doesn't it? Isaac is the promised seed. The seed through whom the plan of redemption would continue. The seed through whom God's blessings would flow to the rest of the nations. And if Isaac dies, then God's promises, God's plan would not be fulfilled. And here's the other thing. You know, you and I know that this is a test. We know that God is saying this, that while God is saying this, this is only to test Abraham. It's not for him to, for Abraham to finally carry it out. And, and it'll become very clear as we go through the, this narrative to the end where God says, no, stop. I don't want you to go ahead with it. It's simply a test. So you and I know this as we're reading this. But Abraham doesn't know that this is a test. It's a little bit like Job. That conversation that happened in heaven, Job never knew why. And even here, Abraham doesn't know why. He doesn't know that this is a test. As far as Abraham is concerned, God is simply commanding him to sacrifice his beloved son as a burnt offering on the mountain that God would tell him. Somewhere in the region of Moriah. So it would almost seem like God is contradicting his own word. Because if he's calling Abraham to kill Isaac as a burnt offering, the very one through whom God's redemptive plan and blessing would continue, at least from Abraham's perspective, it would look like, God, you're contradicting. You're saying everything is going to happen to him. Now you're calling me to kill him? Why, Lord? Why would the Lord want Abraham to do this? I mean, this is certainly a, a very difficult test. And the Lord has never again ever asked any other human being to do anything like this. And, and Abraham being the father of the faith, he has a particular role to be, a, be an example for all, that, all those who will continue in the faith. So there's a uniqueness to this. But even as we look at this, you know, aren't there times when, when we go through trials? You know, times when it looks like God is not being true to His Word or His character? Lord, You said Your Word would, will never return void. You said your plan is to gather people from every nation, but everyone I've shared the gospel with have only rejected it. And the rejection continues to increase. Lord, I've asked for strength to fight this particular sin, but it only seems to be getting worse. Lord, you have said you are close to your children, that you never... Leave us or forsake us, but it so seems like I'm forsaken. That you are far away from me. And you are only afflicting me.
See, when we go through certain trials, if it's not questions about God's seeming contradiction of His Word and character, then it's the why. Why, Lord? Why is this happening to me? This doesn't make any sense. I don't see any good in this. I love what, you know, one commentator speaking on these two verses, this is what he says, quote, God is not always clear. And it doesn't matter how much Reformed theology you've read or even if you personally know Asi's Pro. There will be times when you cannot make head or tail of what God is doing. There may be times when everything you thought you knew about God is up for grabs. When God seems to be so strange that He doesn't seem to be Himself. But these verses from Genesis 22 at least helps us, helps cushion us for such times. For it tells us that very likely we're going to have problems with God's ways. End quote. You know, there are many people who have claimed to be Christians and then I've walked away from the faith. You know why, a lot of the times? Because they couldn't understand why certain things happened in their life. Essentially they're saying, I can't trust a God who I cannot fully understand. And if he doesn't fit into my full understanding of things and he goes outside of that, then I can't trust him. But brother, sister, these two verses should remind us that we won't always understand God or his ways fully. We can understand a lot about him and we can understand a lot about his ways, but we will never understand God or his ways fully. And there are going to be times when it will be difficult to understand God's ways, even though ultimately God is in fact doing everything for our good and for his glory. So that's God's testing. So how does Abraham respond to God's test? And here we see Abraham's faith in verses 3 to 10. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. This is a wonderful picture here. See, even though it would not have made any sense to Abraham, Abraham would not have understood why God was telling him to sacrifice his beloved son. But what you see in Abraham's response is immediate obedience. No matter what the anguish was in his heart, there's no delay on Abraham's part. He rose early in the morning to carry out what the Lord had told him. 
He gets everything ready, including the wood for the burnt offering. And he takes Isaac and, and two young men with him to journey to the place where God had told him. And where is that? One of the mountains in the region of Moriah. And the journey to Mount Moriah took three days. Now during that time, you know, Abraham could have said, I don't understand why God is telling me to do this. This is just too hard for me and I'm just going to turn back. I mean, he was on this journey for three days, right? Any time during that time, he could have turned back. Lots of thinking going on. I'm sure he wasn't going to Mount Moriah very stoically. But what you see is, Abraham is resolute in his obedience to the Lord. But you say, how? How, how? how can he do this? How can he just put one step at a time and, and just, you know, even with such eagerness, obey the Lord when the Lord is asking him to sacrifice his beloved son, the son of promise? Verse 5 gives us a clue. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. It's a profound statement. I mean, first of all, his obedience to the Lord in sacrificing his beloved son. What is he saying to the other men? This is... I'm going there to worship the Lord. Where he's going to bow down to the Lord and serve the Lord and submit his will to the Lord's will. And secondly, notice also where he says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. In fact, it's even more clear in the Hebrew where what he's saying is, I and the boy, we will go there and not I will come back, we will come back. Both of them will come back. Is Abraham lying here to the people? No, he's not. See, this is a profound statement of faith that he's making here. But why would Abraham say that? See, because of the miraculous birth of Isaac. See, because that miraculous birth of Isaac was something akin to life coming from death. And so Abraham believes that if Isaac is killed in the burnt offering, God will still bring to life that which is dead. Because this same Isaac is the promised offspring through which the rest of the descendants would come and the blessings would come to the nations. See, according to the Old Testament, in the Old Testament view, a, a barren woman, to have a barren womb is, is a dead womb, so to speak. You know, in Proverbs 36, there's all these images of deadness. In Proverbs 30, 16. And, and one of those images of deadness is a barren womb. So when Isaac was miraculously born to an elderly barren woman and even... Abraham himself being elderly, at least in his capacity for reproductive purposes, as good as dead, he's realized this is God bringing life from death. And that's why when Paul you know, sees 
chapter 21, and he explains the birth of Isaac in Romans 4 and 17. He says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed. That's talking about Abraham. Abraham believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Or if you just go down a couple more verses, Romans 4, 19, where it says, He, that is Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So God had already brought life from the dead with the miraculous birth of Isaac. And now Abraham is convinced that even if Isaac were to die, God would raise him from the dead. Because God, and specifically Isaac, because God has promised that his, that his promises would be fulfilled through Isaac. And in fact, that's exactly why then the author of Hebrews then picks this up as he ponders on this verse in Genesis 22. And the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, 17 to 19 this, because he, he's a careful reader of Scripture. He's not making this up. And that's why he says in Hebrews 11, 17 to 19, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, notice, that God was able to even, even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So one of the things that you see here with Abraham's faith is that it's a logical faith. See, it's not a blind faith. In fact, faith is never blind. It always rests on God and His Word. Abraham reasoned to himself what he knew about God and about what God had promised him. And even though what God was telling him did not make any sense and it seemed contradictory, Abraham reasoned to himself everything that he knew about God. And he reasoned God's promises, it will not fail. He was already convinced of that by the end of chapter 21. And that's why he said what he said, that both of them would come back after they go and worship the Lord. Because he was so confident of the Lord that even death would not be able to stop God from fulfilling his promises. See, for those of us who are believers, When life comes crumbling down and life seems, you know, contrary to God's promises, what we are to do is we are to reason to ourselves what we know to be true about God and His character and His promises. That is what we must do. That his promises will never fail. And one practical way, even as I was meditating on this passage, is to write down as many promises of God that apply to us as believers and memorize it. Have it on post-it notes or little placards or whatever and memorize them. And it's something that I hope to start doing in the coming future as well because I think it'll be a very good exercise even for me. But it's only as we hold on to the character of God and His promises that His promises will never fail. Only as we hold on to that will we be able to obey the Lord when life is difficult. 
This is the only way we will walk through trials and difficulties of this life. Not simply by looking at it. If Abraham simply said, okay, I don't understand why the Lord is telling me to do this. This doesn't make any sense. And didn't reason to himself about God and what he knew to be true. He would not have said what he said and he could not have obeyed God in the way he did. So the only way we can walk through the trials and the difficulties of this life is as we hold on to the character of God and His promises and that His promises will never fail, will we then obey Him even when life is difficult. So Abraham is relying on God's character and His promises. And he tells the two young men to, to wait while he goes to worship the Lord with Isaac on the mountain. And he's confident that they will be back. Now verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. So his beloved son, he, he carries the wood up the mountain to where he will be sacrificed. And Abraham has the fire and the knife in his hand. And they're both going up together. And now Isaac is doing the math. Okay, there's wood, there's fire, there's the knife. But something doesn't add up. And so we see in verse 7, And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. So imagine, Abraham is now, you know, more than 110 years old. 110 years plus. So he, he's a very old man. And Isaac is a strong young boy. And even though Abraham gives him a sort of vague answer and there's no lamb they can see anywhere that Isaac can see, Isaac at this point, I mean he's a strong young man or a young lad at least, he could have easily run away from his father at this time. But notice at the end of verse 8 it says, they both went together. And what it shows by implication is also Isaac's faith that God would provide a lamb. But Isaac also has faith. And isn't this true of all the spiritual children of Abraham, every believer, that they will trust in God and his promises even in the midst of difficulties? And even specifically, the promise of God's provision of a lamb for the sin of his people. Now it's almost like the, you know, th there's been a step-by-step -step gradual, you know, so many details. But it's almost like the camera now goes into super slow motion. It's like frame by frame, watch all these details now. And it's to show both Abraham and Isaac were actually going to go through with the whole sacrifice. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, then laid the wood in order, and then bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
See, if Isaac had any doubts if he was going to be the sacrifice, now it would have been very clear to him. And even here, you don't see Isaac wrestling his father. He doesn't run away. Why? Because both Abraham and Isaac are trusting the Lord. Verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. I mean, just, just picture that. So Isaac is bound up. Now Abraham's built an altar. He's on the wood. And Abraham's reached out his hand and he, he, he's, he's going to do this. Abraham is fully committed to obey the Lord because he's confident in who the Lord is and what the Lord has promised. And really what Abraham is showing is that true faith is obedient faith. That's what Abraham's showing here. And for us, What that means is that if a person is a genuine Christian, then there needs to be evidence of a life of obedience to Christ. That's a person with genuine faith in the Lord Jesus. And this obedience, again, I want to remind you, this is not some way of trying to earn favor from the Lord. Or it's it's not even in some way trying to maintain somebody's salvation. No, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. We've seen that over and over again. But if there is genuine salvation, if there is genuine faith, that person's life will then be marked by obedience to the Lord. Not a perfect life of obedience. But as you take their life as a whole, This obedience is characteristic of a believer's life. The life of obedience to Jesus Christ is the evidence that a person truly believes in Jesus Christ. Think of this, think of it like this. I mentioned to you at the start that, you know, faith is, one way of looking at it is, is really just seeing more and more of the Lord, right? So when you see with spiritual eyes and know more of who God is and who Jesus is and what His promises are, a genuine Christian then will rest in all that. This is who Jesus is. I'm resting in that. This is what he has done. This is what he has said he will do in the future. And I'm going to rest in that. And there's a growing assurance and a conviction of that. And so then the obedience to Jesus is simply a reflection of the fact that you are resting in Jesus and resting in his word and resting in his promises. And so this then affects everything about you. It affects the way you speak. It affects the way you respond to things. It affects the way that you treat others. The way you speak of others. It affects your entire life. So much so that when you live your life this way, others around you can actually validate it. That this is a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly the point of James 2 that we read this morning in our Bible reading. Where he picks out even this reference to Abraham sacrificing his son. And when you think of the context of James, James is writing to those in the church who are undergoing various trials and various afflictions. And James is saying that a true believer evidences the faith that they have in Christ to a watching world. How do they evidence that to that watching world? In the way they live their life. 
even as they're being tested by trials and afflictions. Because James says, otherwise it's not genuine faith. It's simply an intellectual knowledge. Just like the demons who say, yes, I have faith and I, I, I know who God is. And there's an intellectual knowledge. But there's no obedience of faith. I want to emphasize an, an important distinction about true saving faith. See, the focus in faith, in genuine faith, the focus is not me. It's not I. The focus in faith is not my obedience. The focus in faith is not even the power of my faith. No, the focus in faith is the Lord and His Word and His promises. The focus in faith is the excellencies of the Lord Jesus and His Word and His promises. And I see all of that and I'm resting in all of that. And that's what drives the obedience in faith even when life is difficult. And that proves someone's genuine faith. So you see how the focus is never, oh, I'm doing this, or me, or whatever. The focus is on the Lord, and you're resting in that. And because you're so confident in the Lord, so confident in what He has said, confident in His character, that is what drives your obedience. Because you just know this to be true. And so here we see Abraham's faith. And now we move from Abraham's faith to God's provision. In verses 11 through 24. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. See, at just the right time, when Abraham has his hand raised up with a knife to slaughter his son that is bound up and placed on that wood, the angel of the Lord comes and prevents Abraham from going through with the act. He says, enough, stop. But now here's the question. Why does the Lord say, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your only son. I mean, is the Lord uh, learning some new information by, you know, with these chain of events by what uh, um, that Abraham is doing? I mean, but doesn't the Lord know everything? Isn't he the all-knowing God who knows the beginning from the end? Then, then what is the Lord saying when he's saying, now I know this about you? Well, the Lord always knew what was in Abraham's heart. He always knew. This is simply a public declaration that Abraham truly fears the Lord. That Abraham has the highest reverence, has the highest devotion to God. See, what this is displaying is it's a heart that highly reveres God. And so the test simply brought out that fact. Why? For the benefit of Abraham and Isaac, who is a witness, and it will be a witness to everyone else around who will hear this account, that this is what genuine faith is. The Lord knew what was in his heart. 
The Lord knew the kind of faith that Abraham had because ultimately it's the grace of God. So it's a public declaration about him, about Abraham's genuine faith and his devotion to God, that he truly is devoted to the Lord. Abraham proves that he has genuine faith by his actions. And God's test was simply to assure Abraham, to strengthen Abraham's faith, and to be a witness to the world around of God's work in Abraham's life. It's not because God didn't do this test because God didn't know. It's like, oh, I wonder what what Abraham's going to do. No, it was for Abraham's benefit and for everyone else who would hear about this, including Isaac. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. So the Lord stops Abraham from sacrificing his beloved son. And he does indeed provide a a ram to be sacrificed. Instead, did you notice that language? Instead of his son. That's the language of substitution. That a substitute sacrifice was slaughtered in the place of his son. And the other thing to notice here is it, it says the mount of the Lord, right? Which mount of the Lord? Where did the Lord ask him to go? To the land of Moriah, right? If you just turn to Second Chronicles 3 and 1. And there we see that it is on Mount Moriah that the temple would be built many years later where all the sacrifices would be made. The temple would be built there. And all the other sacrifices would be made there on Mount Moriah. So this place, this specific place that God has designated, this event becomes very significant for the people of Israel because it helps them understand the the whole sacrificial system. Because Abraham's sacrifice will foreshadow all the other sacrifices will take place on the same place in the temple where a substitute lamb would be needed for the sin of God's people. The Lord now reaffirms his promises to Abraham because now Abraham truly believes and he's resting in God and God wants to reaffirm his promises. Verses 15 to 17. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Just just to pause there. By myself I have sworn. You know, when somebody swears or promises, they usually swear by somebody else, right? Somebody greater than them. But, you know, here the Lord is swearing or promising, swearing an oath by himself because there's nobody higher than himself. And really think about it. Why is it that human beings swear by something? Because we, we're te- we tend to break our promises, right? That's why we tend to swear by somebody greater. But what about God? Does he break his promises? No, he doesn't. Then why is God swearing by himself? Well, for the accommodation of our weakened faith. Again, it's for the benefit of Abraham and everybody else who will hear. 
I swear by myself, there's no other higher entity than me, no other higher being than me, and I swear by myself that I will bring this about. So that you know for your weak faith to hold on to this strong God. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. So similar promises we've heard before, except now the Lord is saying, I will surely do it. This is absolutely certain and I'm swearing by myself. And look at the end of verse 17. And it says, And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. Now some of your translations, the ESV has got it as his enemies. Now some of the other translations have it as their enemies. That's actually wrong. Because in the original, it's, it's actually a singular What's the significance of this? Because now God is honing in on one specific offspring. Specific seed. A seed that will have enemies. Does that ring a bell from Genesis 3.15? That the seed of the woman will be in conflict with the seed of the serpent? And so this offspring, that See, that offspring that was mentioned there is what God is bringing back here. Abraham, from you, the seed is going to come. And that conflict, who's going to win? This offspring shall possess, shall defeat his enemies. And ultimately the serpent himself. And then it says, in your offspring, not in you now, in your offspring, shall the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So this is the seed of the woman. And as we trace it along, who is the seed of the woman? That's Jesus Christ himself. And that's why then in Galatians 3, he will say that it's a singular that is used. Offspring is used in Galatians 3. And that is referring to Jesus Christ. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Verses 20 to 24, now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has, already, has also borne children to your brother Neho, who is Milcah, the sister of Lot. The brother of Abraham who died, if you remember, and that's why Lot came with him. Abraham took him on. And Abraham's brother Neho married then his niece, who is Milcah. And it says, Uz, his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kemuel, father of Aram, Kesed, Hezo, Pildas, Jitlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Neho. And moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Tiba, Gatham, Tehash, and Makah. Now, we don't know much about these children. But what we know is this. When you count the number here, there are 12 sons in total. And so this is, this is not the promised seed, the promised line. This is from outside of the covenant line, they are multiplying, they, they are being prosperous. And then over there, so there's 12 sons and a gr granddaughter who is Rebecca. And so what God is implying is, yeah, you know what, Abraham's promises are not still fully realized, but I will surely do this. Yes, those outside the covenant line, things might seem like it's prospering. And poor Abraham has just got this little Isaac here. But I will make my promise come to fruition. In fact, who is Rebekah? As we will see later on, Rebekah will be the wife of Isaac. 
So God is orchestrating things whereby He's moving His plan forward and His promises will come to pass. God is providentially moving things to achieve His plans. What do we take from this? Well, I want to go back to that question that Isaac asked his father. Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? You see, on that same place where the temple would be built many years later, day in and day out, lambs would be slain for the sin of the people. And as Donnie reminded us this morning, you know, it would be repeated again and again and again. Why? Because the sin issue was never dealt with, ultimately. But it would also be a reminder to the people again and again, they need a substitute for their sin. They need a substitute for their sin. But is there any ultimate relief for the people of God? Well, as the pages of Scripture as we flip through it and we come to the New Testament, John the Baptist looking at Jesus coming will say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, and this eternal Son of God he carried the cross, the wood, up another mountain. Not Mount Moriah, but Mount Golgotha, Mount Calvary. And there he was crucified on the cross. And if you read through the Gospels, it will say that now in the sixth hour, darkness came to pass. And various things happen in that sixth to ninth hour, and ultimately Jesus dies on the cross in that time. What's the significance of the sixth hour? The sixth hour, that's when the sacrifices for the Passover would start. So you can imagine, you have Mount Moriah, the temple. On the sixth hour, the sacrifices start for the Passover. And here outside Jerusalem, on a mount just parallel to Mount Moriah, Mount Golgotha, or Mount Calvary, there's the Lamb of God. slain for the sin of his people. And anyone standing at a distance would be able to make the connection of what is going on here. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here's the thing. There was no voice from heaven that said, stop. Don't slay that son. In fact, the father went ahead and slew his only begotten, beloved son on that cross. Why? Because he was the substitute for filthy, wretched, sinful people like you and me. But he didn't remain dead. Jesus rose to life on the third day, proving that price for the sin of his people has been paid. 
And so for those of us who are believers can rejoice and continue to rely on him, see more of him, see more of his excellencies, and just rely on him and live in obedient faith. My friend, if you're sitting here this morning and you are not a Christian, can you not see the love of God? Can you not see what he has done? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or as Paul would say in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, he spared Abraham's son, but he did not spare his son. Will you reject this God? Will you reject this Savior? Friend, turn to him and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you say you believe, I believe in what he has done, then I would say turn from your sin, turn from yourself, and continue to rely on him and trust in him and follow in obedient faith because that is the evidence that you truly believe in the Lord Jesus. For those of us who are believers, let us remember that genuine faith is an obedient faith. But it's not a faith that focuses on self. It's not a faith that focuses on obedience or the power of faith even. It's a faith that focuses on God and on Christ and on His Word and on His promises. And that's what will motivate us to obey him and where we will be proven to the rest of the world around that we are genuine believers. And let's continue to glory in our Redeemer this way and live to make much of him. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your kindness and your mercy and your grace shown to us through your only beloved Son that was crushed on the cross, who bore the wrath for our sin. We thank you for loving us this way. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for, for willing to die on the cross on our behalf. And we thank you that now Jesus is seated on the right hand of the Father. And, and we pray, Father, that we would just see more and more of your excellencies, that we would see more and more of the excellencies of Christ, and we would rest in what Christ has done and in what Christ has promised. And it would cause us to live in obedient faith and thereby where we are assured and strengthened of the faith that we have, that it is indeed genuine. And it would be a testimony to all those watching around that we indeed do have genuine faith and it is the work of your amazing grace. We thank you for this and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.